Whew, man. Boy, am I glad to see you guys after a long afternoon and evening of being completely run around by my children. Uh, I've, like, been in my car for the last eight and a half hours. It's ridiculous. Um, anyhow, um, what a delight to... Um, uh, to uh, uh, get uh, get back here and uh, finally get a chance to talk with you guys about the Battle of Pelennor Field, which is pretty awesome. Some super exciting content tonight, which I can't wait to get to. It's funny uh, uh, when I was uh, when I was preparing. You know, I sort of sat down to prepare tonight's stuff, tonight's slides. And, uh, and I, I just kind of just glanced ahead. I'm like, we, we're doing two chapters tonight. I'm pretty sure we're doing two chapters. I looked ahead at the two chapters. I'm like, wow, that's right. The one chapter is like only three pages. Why was I thinking only two? We should have planned three. And then I looked at it. And then, of course, I turned to it. And it's like the story foreseen from. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now I remember why I only did two chapters with that. Because, of course, that, um, that four-page chapter... I, uh, uh, needless to say, I want to talk about like 90% uh, of the text of that chapter. So uh, it's all good. All right. So let's, um, let's get to it. Um, I'm just going to jump straight in tonight because I'm already keeping you late enough as is. So just pretend I did a really long announcement section tonight and then we'll be uh, all caught up uh, with where we normally would be. Uh, so tonight, the great battle of our times, we're going to look at the Battle of Pelennor Field. Of course, we're going to start with the Ride of the Rohirrim, which we didn't get to last time, but that's okay. I expect to get through that. And so three chapters tonight, we're going to totally do it. By the way, we are absolutely finishing on time. Um, and not only are we finishing on time, you'll remember I had it mapped out 17 sessions with the final session of the War of the Ring class being on the like the day before I leave, uh, for like hours before I leave my house to go to Mythmoot, and you know to drive down to Mythmoot, and uh, and you guys laughed, I, you you laughed and mocked at me for that schedule. Uh, not only are we going to finish on that date, we're going to finish on that date in one fewer classes than I had planned. We're going to do sixteen sessions ending on uh, June 20th, if that's the date. Yeah, June 20th. So it's totally happening. It's going to be awesome. All right, so let's jump straight back in. As I said, we're doing the Ride of the Rohirrim. So we were looking at, especially in the second half of last week's class, uh, Denethor, the sort of the decline of Denethor, when Tolkien discovers that the reason Denethor had been kind of a non-factor is that, of course, actually he was going crazy. And the shift to make him, uh, uh, to make him, to uh, transform him into a bad parent, right? Uh, and to make him much more harsh and unreasonable with Faramir, and to have that be the thing that really pushes him over the edge, I think is not only a really keen psychological insight on Tolkien's part, um, but again, just another one of those, you know, there, there are several now, right? There are several really fun examples that, um, that we can all point to from the story as we've seen it unfold, uh, when Tolkien discovers something, right? Not just things... I mean, there's some things which are awesome like that, like when he finally discovers Treebeard, right? When he realizes what Treebeard really is and writes the whole Treebeard chapter, you know, almost in, in one draft, right? They're, they're always going to be... You know, they're, they're, there are bunches of, of sections like that. Um, but moments like last week, you know, when all of a sudden... Uh, he changes his mind and re and recognizes like okay, 
uh, this is how it's really supposed to go when it really comes um, when it really comes together is really is really fun. And yeah, Yana, you're right. It is funny that he keeps wanting to put Treebeard into more stuff. Right. Treebeard does not get enough stage time uh, in the story. But of course, Yana, you remember where that comes from, right? That was the original battle plan. Remember, Treebeard was the catastrophe. Uh, he was the turning point. We didn't have the Rohirrim coming in. We had Treebeard and Gandalf coming in, right? Treebeard was playing the Bjorn role, right? Treebeard was to the Battle of Pelennor Field what what Bjorn was to the Battle of Five Armies, right? Um, so, yeah, you can see, like, he doesn't want to let that go. You know, just initially, just having the Ents... Uh, you know, mop up the orcs in the wold, which is super important, right? To make sure that um, that uh, uh, you know Theoden uh, and his riders don't come home to a you know to a bunch of smoking ruins. So you know, important, but off stage, right? So we need to we need to put them back in anyway. It's it is really fun to see them uh, continuing to uh, to move in as they're as they're doing. Um, but anyway, okay, all right, so let's get to the Ride of the Road here, and because we also get the advent of some other really fun people, uh, namely the Wozes, but first, the return of Treebeard. So, okay, they cross into Anorian of... Oh, wait a second. Hang on. Wait, before I do... I, that was close. I forgot. There was one thing that I wanted to address. Uh, Peter Ribsky caught this. Thank you, Peter, for catching this, and he sent me an email about this. Um, so last week, I typed the slides myself, you could tell how excellently they were typed. Uh, no, in fact, you could tell because I totally screwed them up. So um, one of the passages on the Wizard King, I skipped a line when I was copying the passage out. I skipped the line. I didn't skip just any line. I skipped a really crucial line, and I had a kind of a vague sense of it as I was going through the class that something was missing, but I didn't really notice what it was. The line that I skipped was the line when uh, the second time that Gandalf says that he was a member of his order, a renegade member of his order, and he said that he was from Numenor. I skipped the from Numenor reference, right? So, um, you know, that's fairly important. Uh, let me see if I can, uh, uh, if I can find it uh, quick. Peter sent it to me. Um, again, very uh, uh, um, uh, excellent of Peter to catch, to catch me on this here. Uh, okay, right. Uh, so Christopher is summarizing. He reveals that he is a renegade of his own order from Numenor. So far I have saved myself from him only by flight. For many an age he has lain in hiding or sleep while his master's power waned. You remember I skipped right to that line, right? Um, one of those unfortunate slips where the line, the next line down syntactically works so you don't notice right away. Anyway, whatever. So the line I skipped was, um, a renegade of his own order from Numenor, so far I have saved myself from him only by flight. Okay, so what does this mean? What does it mean that the Wizard King was from Numenor? Um... I don't really know. Of course, it's tempting to say, well, we know, right, that some of the Nazgul were of were Numenorians, right? You know, some of the people to whom the, uh, you know, Sauron gave the Nine Rings were Numenorians. So that's, that's got to be what it means, right? Um, <laughs> probably. But of course, the question that it raises is, 
What then does it mean that he is of Gandalf's order? That was, of course, one of the things we were discussing last time. Where exactly is this? There's no question that Gandalf has ceased to be just a dude who's a professional wizard, right? Part of the professional wizard's guild. Gandalf's order obviously means more than that. Um, The puzzler is in what way, how, possibly, can both of those statements be true? That he is, A, of my order, of Gandalf's order. Now, right, can, can, can this current Gandalf, right, who has at least arrived at the point of the Gandalf in the published book, um, how can he both be of Gandalf's order and also be from Numenor? Um, so, you know, as I'm thinking about this, one of the things that um one of the things that i think is sort of perfectly obvious right is that you can't be a maya from valinor and also be from numenor really kind of in any sense right um if he's from numenor like if he's a numenorian that means he's human, right? I mean, I, I get it, that seems like a really obvious thing to say, but let's, like, make sure to spell that out clearly, right? Um, oh, what page is this? Uh, t- uh, 326, page 326. Um, okay, so... Um, if he's from Numenor, he's got to be human. Like, it's, if he's a Numenorian, he has to be human, which, of course, makes sense on the whole nine for mortal men doomed to die thing, right? And again, we were talking already about the kind of tension between the concept of the nine rings and the, um, uh, and the, the concept of the wizard king being one of Gandalf's order. And my thought about that last week was, well, we see by Gandalf himself taking up one of the rings of power, one of the good ones, not one of the evil ones, right? So the idea that, you know, nine were for mortal men doomed to die if you round up, right? Eight for mortal men plus one wizard as like the crowning, you know, one of Gandalf's order as the sort of crowning achievement of the Nine Rings, you know, so one of the Istari, sort of, again, that word hadn't been invented yet, but one of the, um, uh, one of the, uh, the wizard's took up a ring of power as well, but one of the evil rings of power and was, and was, you know, seduced and destroyed by it. Again, by itself, like on its own, that, um, uh, uh, conceptually, that idea seems to me to work. Okay. But not if he's from Numenor, right? That really seems to just kind of throw another wrench into it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Tony, no, I, 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 well, that's interesting. Tony is saying, uh, could this be, uh, sort of a C.S. Lewis influence, having Merlin be uh, from Numenor. That's a really fascinating idea, right? If uh, C.S. Lewis's adaptation of Tolkien's Numenorian concept then came back to influence Tolkien's concept of Numenor later on, that would be kind of amazing, actually. Um, yeah. Tony, I know just who you should talk to about that, actually. Uh, if ever, Tony, you get a chance to meet Brenton Dickinson, one of our faculty members uh, uh, at Signum, uh, he would be fascinated uh, by that. He's a C.S. Lewis guy primarily, but does a lot of talking, too. Uh, he'd be really fascinated by that connection, I know. Um, but anyhow, anyhow, um, 
So one of the ways in which it makes a, a, a sort of ready sense, not the whole Istari member of the order, you know, Maya thing, but um, the from Numenor thing makes sense. Is, uh, and one could wonder if maybe Gandalf is using it, a member of my order in kind of a looser sense, perhaps? That some, and you know, here, Tony, in, in a sense, I'm kind of going in a similar direction that you were going there. Um, we know that there were sorcerous people, right? The study of uh, sorcery and even uh, presumably in the later years, necromancy and things as they became more and more uh, focused and obsessed with, uh, uh, with death in their later years. Wouldn't be a bit of a surprise to me to find that there were necromancers among the Numenorians. Um, uh, so, um, anyway, yeah, so I, uh, so the idea that there would have been wizards, sorcerers, among the Numenorians, and so, therefore, in a kind of loose sense, that Gandalf wouldn't be saying, yes, he's one of the Maya who were sort of commissioned and sent to Middle-earth. Um, but, so, again, he can't mean that if he's saying that he's from Numenor. I mean, he just can't. Um, I can't see how that's possible. Yeah, Sharon says, so one of my order is a class thing, not a race thing. Uh, yeah, they're like professional colleagues, even though they're not from the same neighborhood. You know, I mean, I, um, I think that that's, um, I think that that's what, um, that's one way to read, uh, one of my order in a way that still makes some kind of sense, um, without him saying that he is like ontologically on the same, you know, level as I was. Um, uh, Tomas says, uh, not a chance that this wizard king is one of the lost blue wizards. Sure. Well, remember, there are no blue wizards yet. That, uh, I, I mean, the literally, the only piece of information we have that suggests that there are any lost wizards is our Gandalf's words uh, to Saruman when he, or, uh, or Saruman's words to Gandalf, excuse me, when he talks about the rods of the five wizards. Uh, and we've only met the three, uh, leaving two totally undescribed uh, wizards. Even the association between them and the color blue does not enter into the Lord of the Rings. That enters into Tolkien's later writing um, when he's doing the stuff on the Astari uh, in the years following. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. No, Sharon, exactly. That's, what, that's how I was reading your comment about uh, think, like uh, race and class from like role-playing games. Exactly, exactly. Um, so they're the same class, right? Like they're, they're, they're like both being warriors, but not necessarily. But see, a member of my order sounds so much more specific than that. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I just really can't, I, I, I can't put these things together. Um, and... 
I kind of have to suspect that one of the reasons that Tolkien cut that reference is the fact that it was a little confusing, um, especially since he has overtly opened the question by having Pippin, as I talked about last week again, Pippin speculating to himself, who is Gandalf? Where? When did he enter the world, right? He's not answered that question. Um, we've got, though we do get, you know, Aloran as I was in the West, right? That That's where we're coming around towards that already, too, when we're listing Gandalf names. Um, that wasn't in the first draft of Gandalf's names. I'm pretty sure that was not exactly there. You guys can remind me of when we first got the list of Gandalf's names um, uh, where uh, uh, how the uh, how the, 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 the West thing was, was listed. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, T- Tony, I agree. Having humans learning magic from Sauron on Numenor would definitely fit with the pattern of people falling when they seek out secret knowledge from more powerful beings. Yeah, no, it makes all kinds of sense um, that he could even be a recruit from Numenor um, itself, like not just of Numenorean descent, but he could have been like a disciple of Sauron's while Sauron was on Numenor. You might say, how then did he survive? Well, there were many Numenoreans in Middle-earth. Um, uh, and so, you know, presumably Sauron could have already sent him since he was in service to him and not to Arpharazon, uh, could have sent him back to Middle-earth to, you know, look over. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which it could have happened. So the idea of his actually being Numenorean and having been a Numenorean wizard, no problems at all there. That makes total sense. However, uh, it's, so the sticking point, again, the sticking point is just member of my order. Um, so inasmuch as that line, which I totally skipped last time, adds something or further confuses that question, the thing that it adds is it adds a little bit more data to say, whatever Gandalf means by that, it seems pretty clear that the wizard gang is supposed to have been originally human. Right? So, and therefore, I cannot help but think, and this could be wrong, but I can't help but think that this means Tolkien himself does not yet fully know the answer to the questions Pippin is asking himself, right? Pippin's a little slow on the uptake to only now be asking the question, right? Who is Gandalf anyway? When did he enter the world? And all that kind of thing. Um, But that just because Pippin is slow to ask doesn't mean that Tolkien knows the answer, right? Um, So I'm kind of... uh, one, okay, great. Thank you, James. I, I knew you'd find it. Uh, James says the original quotation from, from the earlier in the War of the Ring when he was doing the Book 4 stuff, Oh, Laura and I was in my youth that is forgotten. Notice the vagueness there, right? Um, that also suggests that certainly at the time that he wrote that, it is not obvious that Tolkien had a concrete concept of Gandalf's youth, of where Gandalf came from and when he entered the world, right? And how. He entered the world. Um, doesn't mean he didn't, right? But it's it is certainly there's no positive reason to think that he did. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Stephen says Pippin is slow to ask because Tolkien was slow to ask. Right? No, exactly. I mean, and and Stephen, this is a kind of thing that we can see, right? Which I think is really fun uh, when. Oh, that's really cool, Stephen. So, okay, um, one of the 
observations, uh, one of the many very smart observations that Mike Drought has made about the Lord of the Rings. Um, he talks about the, uh, the epistemic re- regime of the story, that is, the, uh, the, the limit of knowledge of the narrator, right? And one of the things that Mike Drought has pointed, pointed out um, is that one of Tolkien's predominant narrative approaches is to have the narrative primarily follow the point of view of the most clueless person present, right? That very frequently happens. Rarely do we get scenes from the point of view of Aragorn or Gandalf. We get the the story chiefly from the point of view of hobbits, right? And often from the less informed. You'll notice as Frodo becomes, is sort of escalating, right? As the story goes on, the story is more and more in Sam's point of view, right? That kind of thing. Um, anyway, so um, so uh, the point is... Um, th- so, Stephen, here's the thing that I would want to add. And again, I think Mike, Mike's totally right about this. I mean, and he, he makes a really, great, uh, a really great point about that. But here's the thing that I would add to that. Um, in part, he seems to do that because that's also his point of view as well, right? Uh, he so often, and I think, you know, Stephen, this is a wonderful example, right? Just as you're suggesting. Um, we're getting, we're seeing this from Pippin's point of view. We're sort of wide-eyed looking around, seeing these things for the first time, bigger than we expected, you know, just just really striking awe and wonder as we go through. And of course, it has a really marvelous effect on the reader. That's Mike Drott's point, right? Um, by putting us in the point of view of Pippin there, um, you know, Gandalf is not looking at the scenery when he's riding through Minas Tirith, right? He's got other things. To, he's been there before, seen it before, and he's got other things to think about, right? Whereas Pippin is like, whoa, look at that, look at that, right? So we get to ride along with Pippin um, and have the same kind of experience that Pippin has. Um, but, but here's the kicker. Right? So is Tolkien. As he's writing it, Tolkien is having that same... He's riding along with Pippin, too. He's never, almost never, telling the story from Gandalf's point of view, because he doesn't know Gandalf's point of view. He never knows as much as Gandalf knows. Right? Tolkien never learned everything that Gandalf knows. Um, And I think that that's... um, that that's that that's just lovely, you know. Um, and no, Tom, I'm not lumping Sam and Pippin together exactly. Of course, their perspectives are different. And uh, the, uh, no, no, no. It's, I'm not saying that they're the same. Um, but again, it's like the more uh, the more humble, the more down, the the more limited. I mean, Sam doesn't get it, right? Sam doesn't understand. And of course, we can see that coming to its sort of tragic fulfillment, right? Um, uh, in the stairs of Kirathungul scene with Gollum, uh, the sort of Sam not seeing the full big picture, right? Um, anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, Stephen says it certainly sounds a lot more fun for the author uh, than knowing the entire story from the get-go and just copying it down. Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. And this is why I just... Uh, I... I I can't help Stephen, but think about J.K. Rowling here, you know, and the posture that J.K. Rowling has always, always taken from the very beginning, you know, of like, 
I know everything and I've always known everything. And, and uh, like, you know, it's just like I've just been unfolding my genius stage by stage, um, which is just not only so demonstrably incorrect, but I, 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 I get it. I mean, I, I think I get it because, I mean, she got a lot of flack, especially at the beginning. I mean, when her books first started being popular and everyone was like, who is this, you know, clueless person? And, and you know, and she, she got a lot of flack and, and a lot of disrespect uh, from people who were... Uh, skeptical or, or, or derisive uh, towards the whole Harry Potter phenomenon when it first began. Um, so she was kind of building herself up uh, to, to kind of uh, get respect when she was not getting any at the beginning. Um, and I get that. Uh, but the th- but I, f- I have felt from the beginning that it was a mistake, you know, uh, that I felt like she's n- she never understood that she was lowering herself, not raising herself by claiming to know everything. Um, and, but Stephen, what's more, it would not only be more fun for her to be able to not only be the author, but to be able to talk about her experience as an author, if she didn't take that, if she took Tolkien's line instead of her line. Um, but it would also be much more fun to be her fan and reader. Uh, it's, 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 everything's more fun when everybody's clueless. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so but I don't want to get in a whole big tangent with J.K. Rowling, but to me, that that's just it's so uh, uh, she is to me the 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 just the classic example of the author who's tried as much as I've seen any author try to push it in the absolute opposite direction. Uh, I never have discovered anything spontaneously. Everything has been the unfolding of my master plan. Um, yeah, ignorance really is bliss, Stephen. This is so much more fun. Um, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> Nancy says other culprits of this are Coleridge and the writers of Lost. Yeah, yeah, no, I can... <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> I hear that. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, cool. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Good. All right. I'm anyway, sorry. I'm not going to get myself uh, allow myself to go on too much of a tangent. Okay. But I did want to thank you, Peter, for correcting me. I did want to go back and correct that one point. Uh, and also because I was threatening to start my slides really quickly there. And we, you know, I, I couldn't let that go. So uh, here we go. Back to Treebeard. <clears throat> they cross into Anorian of Gondor and camp under Halifirian, 160 miles. Mysterious drums are heard in the woods and hills. Theoden resolves to ride warily and sends out scouts. Twelve. Uh, these are dates, I believe, still. Yeah, 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 they're dates. Uh, they halt some... Uh, so the dates in March, obviously, at this point. They halt some 230 miles on at dusk, 64 miles or a day's ride from Pelennor. They camp in the skirts of the forest of Eilanach, out of which rises Eilanach Beacon. Scouts return with the Aran riders of Minas Tirith, who had ridden ahead but found entrance closed. There is a great camp of enemy under Amondine, changed to Minrimmon, about 25, changed to 50 miles west of Pelennor, or about 40, changed to 14 miles further on. Orcs are roving along the road. Dark men of Eilanach come in. They decide to push on by night. Suddenly they see fires ahead and hear cries. A great hum-hum is heard. Ents! Treebeard cries Mary. Uh, by the way, I love the potential ambiguity of that sentence. Is it, Treebeard cries Mary, or is it, Treebeard cries Mary? <laughs> right? we, we will find that it's definitely the former, uh, but I, I really love how you can read that sentence either way. Uh, uh, I have to admit, 
that, of course, it's very natural for Mary to cry out, Treebeard, when he sees him coming. The idea of Treebeard coming into battle crying, Mary, is, to me, oh, just such a beautiful, charming idea. Anyhow, sorry, okay. The enemy camp is in confusion. Dark men of Ilanok have attacked it, and suddenly coming out of north after a victory over orcs and wold, Treebeard and a company of Ents. Rohirrim come round to rear and sweep the remnants away northwest into marshes. They halt under Minrimmon and take counsel of war. Okay. Um, all right. So um, let's... Um, all right. First general note. I am going to carry on ignoring two of the things which Christopher Tolkien is most focused on, right? I'm not apologizing for that. I'm just observing, again, that I'm not trying to slip it past anybody, right? I am going to carry on ignoring, A, the struggle to reconcile the chronological sequence, and B, the maps, right? As obviously both of those things are things that Tolkien is obviously thinking about. In fact, you can see, I would even go so far as to suggest a lot of the origin of this outline, like why is he writing this outline, one of the primary motivations it would seem for writing this outline is to sort out the dates and distances, right? He's got to make sure that the distances are set because he's, he's, he, he's doing a scale map, right? And he's working that all out. But at the same time, he's also making sure that the distances on that map are realistic for them to be able to travel uh, for the sake of coordinating the, uh, the dates and everything. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, uh, but I'm not, I'm not, uh, so, but those, I, as I say, confession that I'm, I'm going to carry on pretty much ignoring that element of it, even though it's obviously really important in Tolkien's process right here. But I did want to just say, I'm, I don't want to ignore it aggressively. I, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm actively trying to make an argument that it isn't important or interesting. Um, it is important. It's obviously an important part of Tolkien's process here. And I would want to encourage anybody who has any observations about it, or, or I mean, if, if you see any patterns or anything of interest in looking at the chronology and in looking at the, 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 the map stuff as it comes in, totally feel free to point that out in class to send me an email about it be happy to i'm just not doing it myself because i'm trying to focus on the core story and uh that's that's what i'm doing so but again i just wanted to just wanted to kind of throw that out there now so what is what is the story here uh on the one hand we have these multiple armies, and this has been this has been a big part of it from the beginning. Clearly, one of the um, we see Tolkien kind of well. I won't say um, I won't say backed into a corner because it, it's not that extreme. Though goodness knows we've seen that before uh, in his as his stories developed. Um, no, so it's it's not quite that extreme. But what we do see is. Um, Tolkien having a, an initial concept, and now he's running into a problem, right? So the initial concept is those multiple armies. So you've got Minas Tirith and Mordor, right? And you've got the armies from Mordor. So there's the one that's coming straight across from, from uh, Minas Morgul. And then you've got the one coming up from the south, uh, you know, the 
the the Harad Hoth, which I, I wish he had still used that word in the Lord of the Rings. So you've you've got the Harad Hoth coming up, and then you've got this other army from the north that's coming around. That's the one that's in the Wold and everything, right? Um, so as he's mapping this out, and as he's looking on this, he's like, okay, so it's been part of the overall concept here that Sauron is not just going to send one army. Um, he's going to send three armies to Minas Tirith, right? And one of those armies, therefore, is going to be in the way when Theoden tries to ride down to the relief of the city. In fact, he then is pushed to what seems like the inescapable conclusion um, that part of the point of the northern army would be to prevent Rohirrim coming to the to the uh, to the aid of the city, right? So, if there's an army between Rohan and Minas Tirith, and that army's probable purpose is to prevent the Rohirrim coming to Minas Tirith, how are we going to deal with that? Um, as Christopher suggests with very great plausibility that Tolkien does not seem to want any part of having a massive battle sequence, right? Um, you know, as a kind of preamble uh, to the Battle of Pelennor Field. So how how can he get himself out of this problem? Yes, uh, James Oakley, uh, Faramir is a wonderful illustration of that. Uh, that's uh, the Tolkien painting himself into a corner. Um, the corner that he painted himself uh, into with... Oh, what was his name? Fin- Finborn? Fin- I'm forgetting his name. His original name. Faramir's original name. It was Born, right? It was like Anborn's son... Falborn, that was it. Uh, I knew I, I I had the right first letter. I didn't have the right first syllable. Falborn, right? Um, the Falborn dilemma, right? Where he's gonna he's he's he can't let Frodo and Sam go, but he doesn't want to uh, kill them, and so you know he wants to. So yes, exactly. That's that's a that's a wonderful example of the um, the way in which uh, a Tolkien has painted himself into a corner. He's not quite that desperate yet, um, but we've got a problem here. So his first impulse is to do a battle, right? They're going to have to deal with them, but they get help, right? So they get help, and that um, therefore makes this battle uh, sort of dealt with a little more quickly, right? Um, so it's a, it's about, but it's obviously not like the major battle, and we don't have, so we don't bog the Rohirrim down. We don't have them take serious losses. If they've just fought a major battle up in the north, they're going to be uh, uh, beat up and tuckered out by the time they get to Minas Tirith, and that's going to, um, that you know, if we get a like a bunch of wounded men limping their way towards Minas Tirith, it's just not going to be the same um, uh, when we hear the horns in the hills. So, uh, so this is so. Treebeard, right? Treebeard's going to come down and help. Um, and so we have the ends coming in. Now the Dark Men of Eilanach come in. Um, dark Men. What does Dark Men mean? I think it's pretty... I think it's pretty clear what Dark Men means. Um, those are men from the Dark Years. Uh, the reference, the link back, would be... To, remember all those descriptions of Dunharrow? Um Remember how in the original concept of Dunharrow, um, Dunharrow was originally the center, the, sort of the cultural center of a group of men that lived there during the dark years, um, you know, during the, the years of the domination of Sauron. That d- it didn't say 
anything about them. You know, there, remember there were places where it didn't say anything about whether or not they had been servants of Sauron. There were somewhere they were actively in rebellion and defiance of Sauron. Remember, um, but anyway, they were they were an older culture from long before the Rohirrim came uh, into this area. And in and, and as you may recall, in that very first version of the description of Dunharrow, they had intermingled with the Rohirrim, and the result of those men of the dark, of those dark men, those men from the dark years, um, which I think is clearly what he means by dark men. I do not at all believe that he means that as any kind of physical description. So when he says dark men, I do not think we're supposed to be imagining dark-skinned men. Does that mean that they don't have dark skins? No, I'm just saying I don't think that that's how he's using the word dark there. Um, yes, Brian, exactly. It does echo the division of men into high, middle, low. Um, uh, dark men, yeah, those, those, the men of the darkness, men of the light, that, those were, uh, remember Faramir's definitions of those things, uh, when he gets talking to Frodo and starts talking and talking and talking and becomes a whole second chapter eventually because he won't shut up. Yes, in those speeches, when he's talking about the different kinds of men, he talks about men of the darkness, right? Uh, namely, the men who never went, they never crossed the Blue Mountains, right? They were never involved in the uh, the wars of the First Age. They're not elf friends. They're not connected with any of that. They've been living here in Eriador and Rovanian um, during the time of, you know, through the reign of Sauron and probably before. Uh, the Brelanders are dark men as well. Um, exactly, James. Swarthy men. Now that's a physical description, right? Dark is a category. Um, so to say that the dark... He's, he does not mean that the dark men are dark-colored any more than he means that the light elves are luminous and glow in the dark. Right? They're, they're, those are categories. Okay? Um, again, this doesn't mean that they might not be dark-skinned. In fact, you'll recall that when the uh, Rohirrim were intermingling with them, it was darkness, especially of hair uh, and eye. But, but, I mean, so there was some physical darkness, right? The darkness of coloration that was indeed associated with them. But again, that's not what that term means here. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And Tony, it is very much like the Caliquendi moraquendi division of the elves. In fact, if you remember those drafts of the Faramir chapters, Faramir himself was making explicit parallels between the groupings of the elves and the groupings, the, the, the categories, uh, of, of humans. Um, Okay, so, um, so these dark men, where are they coming from? I think it's pretty clear where they're coming from. I mean, yes, Eilanach, but that's, that's, that's not what I mean. Uh, where are they coming from in the story? We know where they're coming from. They're coming from that recycling drawer, right? They're coming from that, that, that drawer that Tolkien puts the things that he cut out of his story earlier on, right? When, uh, when the dark men who lived in Harrowdale eventually become the ghosts that, you know, we've changed and changed and now it's like it's, and the first it was the party cave and then it becomes, uh, you know, the haunted Dwimmerberg. Um, and now we, and, and then they become the oath breakers, right? So, um, now, but he still has that idea of these living remnants, right? Um, he likes the idea, of course, of the ancient 
race of dark men who lived mysteriously and we don't know anything about them and the way is shut and we don't know why it's shut or how and we don't know who's supposed to come and why it's there and the point of the Dwemerberg and it's all mysterious, right? And the mystery is cool. But obviously, Tolkien also really liked the idea of having a living remnant of those dark men. Um, So I think that what we're getting here is Tolkien's love for the ancient men of Harrowdale who got kind of relegated to ancient history and to untold stories, right? But he does, he's so he he's he's pulling them out of his reusing drawer, right? And that's where we get the dark men of Ilanok. And remember, this will soon become explicit when Mary looks at them and thinks of the Pukul men, right? Um, okay, but however, keep in mind. So are these the Druidon? Yes and no. Yes, they are the Druidon. I mean, this is going to be Han Buri Han, and once he starts drafting the you know discussion between Han Buri Han and and uh, Theoden, we're gonna um, you know it, the the thing in its almost its final form is going to leap out fairly quickly. So yes, this is the Wozes. This is that scene. But if you're thinking of the Druidon and all the things we learn about Druidon culture in Unfinished Tales, no, we haven't done that yet. That's a further elaboration that comes in later on. General rule of thumb. When we're thinking about the Lord of the Rings, especially as we're thinking about the composition of the Lord of the Rings, forget Unfinished Tales. Forget everything in Unfinished Tales. The Unfinished Tales, all of it, I'm, I'm pretty sure every single bit of everything that is published in Unfinished Tales is written in that period of time after the publication of the Lord of the Rings. So, um, it is not safe to assume that the concepts articulated in Unfinished Tales, it's not, it's not safe to assume that any of those concepts are simply, are already here, right? And that it's okay for us to kind of apply that here. Not, not safe. Again, I'm not saying that it's definitely not true. I'm saying it's not safe, to do that. Um, it may be that some of those ideas that he are fully articulated in unfair or fully, partially at least, articulated in, in Unfinished Tales. It's possible that some of them are already in his mind here, but a lot of that we can't know for sure, and of much of that I'm extremely skeptical. Um, so, because what, what we see him doing so much in Unfinished Tales is figuring stuff out, answering questions, questions that he himself observes. Right. So who is Galadriel anyway, and what is her history? Um, she's a new character. He invents her when he gets to Lothlorien in the Lord of the Rings, as we saw back in the in the Return of the Shadow, um, or Treason of Isengard. Actually, I know they all run together in my head now. But anyway, um, he invents Galadriel, but obviously she's a big deal. Once he gets there, she becomes huge, right? So obviously she has to have a backstory, but he's not thought it up yet, right? So he's got to work that out. Uh, similarly, uh, like the, the Astari, right? He's not answered Pippin's question fully, so he needs an answer for it. So he writes stuff, right? And writes the essay on the Astari. The Palantiri, we know he still hadn't fully figured out the Palantiri, right? So he's, he writes the essay on the Palantiri. Um, he obviously loves the and so he writes the thing there. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it is. Kevin, it is like archaeological layers. It's really fun. But as, since since that is what we're doing, um, that's why I would urge you as a general rule to forget Unfinished Tales uh, as we're reading this book because we're not 
we're we're uh, we're looking at a layer far, much further down the stratum than than the the, the higher ones, which are the unfinished tales. Um, absolutely. Okay. All right. So, but what do they do? The Dark Men of Ilanok. So we know where they came from. You know, that is from the point of view of Tolkien story writing. Um, they come in and attack the orcs. Unexpected allies. Right now, I mean, the ends are unexpected in the sense that it's unexpected that they show up, but it's not unexpected that they're allies because they've been, they've acted as allies before. Right? Um, we know their thoughts about orcs. Uh, we know that they are maybe not altogether on, you know, Theoden's side, um, and yet they're obviously helping them and working against the, sh- working against the shadow. Um, the dark men are more of a complete surprise in that sense. Um, but I would say, I think that this is nevertheless a familiar story. Um, and again, what do we get again? Surprise, surprise. Tolkien finding a different way to bring in an idea that he'd cut, he cut something from earlier on. Remember that whole gathering of the allies thing, right? The thing which was originally the spontaneous showing up at the muster of Rohan of people, everybody who was going to, you know, the sort of Shades of the Last Alliance thing, right? When uh, not only rangers from the north, but also Bjornings were coming down and and Dunlendings were coming in to join with the Rohirrim, their ancestral enemies, in order to fight against the Shadow. And and uh, we're going to get Elves of Lorien coming down, right? We've got all the everybody, everybody joining together, right? Um, the Everyone who opposes the Shadow rising up and unifying. Um, that's that was a that was clearly an interesting and an important element, and of course that scene of the allies coming in gets shifted to Gondor, and in a sense lessened, right? Um, because it it, it kind of becomes the people from the southern fiefs coming into Minas Tirith with uh, Pippin and the dude who is not yet and the kid who is not yet Burgil, uh, looking out and watching them come in, and that's cool, but it's not the same at all. Right. Uh, these are, you know, the vassals of Minas Tirith coming in and obeying the call of their liege lord, which is to a totally different story than the unexpected and spontaneous rising up of allies they didn't know they had. Right. Joining in to fight against the shadow. Um, so this is, in my mind, th- that's what we're seeing here. Right, that concept. He's not abandoned that concept, and he brings it in. And Han Buri Han, especially with the coming of the Ents as well, right? Combined with the coming of the, so here are the Rohirrim, <clears throat> here are the Rohirrim faced with Tolkien's problem, right? How do they deal with this northern army without getting too distracted and or beat up by them, right? Answer: the unexpected arising of allies, as those who have not been explicit allies before, indeed those who have been totally out of contact with Rohan join with them in order to fight the shadow, right? In this case, the Ents and those who are not yet called the Wozes. Um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, they are, Yana, they are harder. Uh, His name should be It's voiced. Um, I, I make my son Matthias crack up every time I do the consonant. He thinks that's the funniest thing he's ever heard, the idea that that's a consonant. Um, that's clearly what that consonant is. Um, I just, 
uh, am going to damage myself if I try to do that sound too often and too quickly. Uh, uh, so I, I, I do it. Uh, I do it quickly as I go by, and I tend to shorten them, them almost to H's, just kind of rough H's when I when I say Hanbury Han really fast. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, um, yeah, Karita agrees. It is funny, isn't it? I mean, that's that's an intrinsically hilarious... I laughed the first time I learned that that was a consonant. Uh, but anyway, there it is. Um, okay, so... Okay, so that's where we are here. And then we get through here, I'm coming and sweeping them into the marshes. Uh, so we get, like, redux of the... Uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, we're revamping the Battle of Calibrant here. You know, so we're, we're kind of redoing the... Aero the Young, that's great. Excellent. Okay, uh, yep, all right. Treebeard's call of hum hum or something similar, is heard. Mary sprang up. Treebeard, he cried. This is where it's clear who's crying whom. Treebeard comes with good news. The Ents and the Huorns had something or other. The invaders... I don't even want to know what the verb was that they did to the invaders. We're better not knowing, I think. Uh, Anyway, had done something unspeakable to the invaders on the wold and driven them into the river. There are some times when the words that Christopher can't read are really funny, and that's one of my favorites, actually. Okay, sorry. Fragments of the following sentence refer to the rumor of the ride of the Rohirrim having reached the Ents, and to their great march southwards to aid the king. Friendship and reward the king offered, but he asked only leave when war was over to return to Fangorn and there be troubled by something or other. I'm guessing he does. He wants to be troubled by nobody, presumably, or something. I, I can't imagine he's requesting a particular kind of trouble. I think he's opting out of a particular kind of trouble, most likely. Anyway, for reward he would take something or other, so it's really unclear here, but... It seems that the general concept, right, is that Treebeard is offered a reward by the king, right, but he declines being rewarded in the way that the king king offers his reward. Um, uh, (laughs) Tara says this is like Tolkien Mad Libs. Yeah, exactly, actually. That would be a really fun thing to do with... uh, uh, some of these passages uh, from the History of Middle-earth series. That would be really funny. Um, anyway, yeah, so, Brian, exactly. Um, the reason that I, although we're not given anything <laughs> definitive about what Treebeard actually requests, given, Brian, as you point out, what we later see um, with Theoden and the Druidon, right, with Theoden and the Woeses uh, in, uh, in the published text, it's pretty clear that what Treebeard is saying is, you know, that he he asks not to be troubled. He asks not to be disturbed, right? Um, leave us in peace and let us continue as we've been. Um, and of course, that's not surprising. It, it, you know, Brian, it's not just that he's asking for the same bargain that the Druidon want later. It's this, It's like this is the same asking, right? Uh, this concept is going to get shifted. When Treebeard is no longer here, it's going to get shifted just to uh, the Druidon, just to the Dark Men uh, themselves. Um, so, uh, so exactly, Kevin, Tolkien's recycling this again. Um, and so, 
But that I find particularly interesting in correlation with um, what I was observing in the last slide, right? Um, two concepts that Tolkien brings forward together here, right? First, all those who that there are those who oppose the shadow everywhere, even unlikely people like Dunlendings. And Yana, I am with you. I really wish we had gotten a bunch of Dunlendings fighting with the good guys somewhere or other here. I really like that element of the story, and I'm sorry that that got left. Um, uh, of all of those, of all the things in this whole area, you know, this that category of things, uh, it's the Dunlendings I most regret losing. But anyhow, um, so we've got that one story element of, again, they're, they're enemies of the shadow, even in unlikely places, and the help that will come from them may be unexpected, um, but be ready for that help, because it's 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 going to come, because the shadow has opponents everywhere. Um, and that kind of banding together of uh, unlikely allies, or even traditional enemies, uh, in their greater fight against the greater enemy. Really cool little theme that we get there. But it's con- the fact that he pairs it with this one, right? We are going to come out of nowhere and help you, because you're fighting the shadow, and the stroke you are about to strike at the heart of the shadow is really important and we want to support it, right? Because we want you to drive back the darkness. We want you to ride off and kill the orc army that we're not going to... who would over overwhelm our forest if they came through here. So we want that. And we support you and we're going to help you. But afterwards, we'd quite like you to leave us alone. Thank you very much, right? We're allies, but that doesn't mean we want to move in together. Um, so that he does this whole camaraderie of, like, you know, this multicultural um, alliance uh, to fight against the darkness, but it's not a melting pot. Very distinctly, not a melting pot, right? Um, afterwards, those cultures are going to remain separate. Um, and what they want more than anything is for their own separate, their own freedom, their own independence. This is not the. Uh, there is uh, nothing. Whenever sometimes I pause when I'm about to use an absolute word like always or nothing or never, but um, there is nothing of the imperial element in that alliance formation. Um, the Druidine might come and assist the Rohirrim, but the Rohirrim aren't going to culturally acquire the Druidine, right? They're not going to become integrated into the um, into the Rohirric culture. That's not going to happen, right? Um, and in fact, that's that the, Tolkien is going out of his way to to to, to clarify that, to specify that, um, and I think that that's really interesting. Um, I, uh, um, I have heard many people, um, try to make Tolkien as imperialist arguments, and I almost always find those very unconvincing. Um, Tolkien was, you know, a person of his times in many ways. I have never found that he is obviously imperialist. Imperialism happens in his story, of course, um, but it is very rarely 
a good thing. Um, but uh, anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, Yana, we got almost no details about that. Yana's asking, how much do the Wozes realize what would happen to them under Sauron? Do they know they'd be enslaved? What's their cultural memory like? Um, we know uh, uh, at this point, nothing at all. Um, all we know is that the... In fact, uh, you know, Yana, I would say the only indirect evidence that we have... Um, uh, the only indirect evidence that we have about what these dark men's culture is is from those passages about yeah, uh, Harrowdale, right? Uh, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Anyway, okay. Um, yes, Tony, that's a really great distinction. They offer friendship, not fealty. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, good. Okay, so yeah, so even when Treebeard is no longer the one who's making this stipulation, um, uh, that this, this element is going to stick, right? This is going to remain an important part of this story. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And Yana, I agree. Uh, one of the primary examples of, of imperialism that we get, uh, uh, the most obvious examples of imperialism that we get, um, is Numenor, right? And it's, that's not praise, right? Um, when Numenor begins acting like an empire, it has be, it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't cause it to go bad, right? It's a symptom of its going bad. It's a result of its going bad. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, anyway. Okay, keep going. Another interesting little factoid about the woe, the, the woes is the other page began thus, but the wild men were nowhere to be seen. At the first sight of the Ents, they had cried out shrieks of fear and fled back to vanish in the hills. What dark and distant something or other, what dark and distant legends out of elder days held their minds enthralled, none could say. But Treebeard soon found for himself what he needed. Something or other, a pool under the side of Amundine fed by a spring. Possibly above. There he stood and probably laved himself while the king and his captains held council under the trees. After both something and warriors are needed, Lord, said Aemir's Falskid. I'm not terrible. I can't get the Mad Lib suggestion out of my head now whenever I read those sections. <laughs> now, now I, I am, I am, uh, Tara, now you have me in my head going both noun. And warriors are needed. Uh, Lord said Aemir as follows. Some few at least must have escaped eastward and give warning of our approach. Does this refer to the wild men? From the rest of this page, scarcely anything useful can be gleaned, but the sentence, the wild men lead them again along hill paths, is clear, which is puzzling, since there seems not to be enough text intervening to explain the reversal of the story just given. Okay. Um, so, uh... Um... Yeah, Nancy, it's a little unexpected. When they scream and run from the Ents, it's a little unexpected. When we get the juxtaposition of their screaming and running from the Ents with Treebeard taking a bath, it's hard for me not to find it comical, right? I mean, it's, you know, they're, you know, they see Treebeard and they run in fear. Why? What is he doing that is scaring them so much? Just looking for a place to bathe, apparently. But that is, um, uh, that is, uh, very, um, uh, very scary, apparently. Um, but anyway, to be serious about it, um, 
it is interesting that they're yeah, Nancy. I don't know what what is how it's fair to characterize it. Um, superstitious, possibly ignorant, at least, right? I mean, uh, you know, and honestly, it makes me think of Saruman's words, the wild wood demons, right? As he characterized them, that must be how they think of them, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, that, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how to fit it. Um, yeah, Nancy's thinking specifically about the, uh, dark and distant legends holding their minds enthralled, making her think of superstition. Yeah, what dark and distant legends out of elder days held their minds enthralled, none could say. Yeah, I guess that's what I meant when I was talking about ignorance, that, uh, I mean, they don't know what Ents are really like, right? All they have are ancient stories which are presumably mistaken, probably mistaken, maybe not. I mean, there might be, they may, may be based on truth. I mean, if some of their ancestors had done some wanton hewing of trees, you know, there might have been an Ent who, you know, uh, objected to that with great prejudice. So it's not impossible that, the, I mean, remember the conflict between the hobbits and the old forest, right? So, you know, it, it's possible that um, there could have been some misunderstandings back in the day, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Yana, of course, is perfectly right to recall how the elves of Lothlorien are twisted in the minds of the Rohirrim. Um, we do seem to see something kind of similar there. Um, yeah. Um, and remember also Faramir talking about that as well. It was one of the things that he correlated. Um, that kind of cultural ignorance, right? Um, that there are a lot of things that they don't they don't have the straight of um, as a people because they didn't have teachers right um, they didn't have the Numenorians the elves the Valar before them right to teach them how things really worked um, uh, so yeah yeah um, that's one of the kind of spectra. Right, that Faramir points to when he's making cultural distinctions and trying to describe not only where the men of Gondor are, but how the direction in which they've slid or are sliding, right? Um, and yet, nevertheless, although this is kind of understandable on that level, it kind of seems a little odd still. Um, not odd that this kind of cultural, you know, ignorance or superstition or whatever would be correlated with dark men like this, you know, with this category of people. But, I mean, the wild men, I don't know, kind of seems like they'd be the sort of people that Treebeard would dig, actually. Um, uh, I mean, they're woodcrafty, but that doesn't mean they carve and build stuff out of wood. That means they can sneak around. Like, if one is woodcrafty, uh, then that means that you can, like, you are good at tracking in the forest, and you're good at, uh, like, walking through the forest without making a lot of noise, and you're good at, you know, knowing 
uh, animal signs and, and being able to tell stuff, you know, like that's woodcraftiness. Um, Beleg is the most woodcrafty dude ever, right? Um, uh, his, his ability to track and forage and all that kind of things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Yana, we don't use the word bushcraft in America, but yeah, that's that's it. I didn't know they used it in Europe. I would have thought that was an Australian term, uh, but uh, but no, we don't use that term in America. But yes, that that's what woodcraftiness is. And so people like that, people who are living, um, you know, in the forest with the forest like that, um, not clearing. But it's not obvious that they have any agriculture. Um, you know, it's not obvious that this, so that the, I don't think they're clearing parts of the forest for uh, for planting. I don't know that they're building big structures or you know anything like that. So I don't see what cause they have to. Um, you know, I don't know what the quarrel would be between them and Ents. Uh, I, like I said, I would think that the Ents would quite like them actually. But um, anyway, okay. Um, It's, so he seems to be, Tolkien seems to be flirting with the idea of, um, well, okay, no. Christopher is wondering whether or not Tolkien was flirting with the idea of having the wild men be unstable or um, betraying them, right? The giving warning of our approach, Christopher's asking, does this refer to the wild men? Um I kind of want to answer Christopher, no, I, I doubt it, right? Exactly as he argues later on, I think they're meant to be allies all the way through. I don't think the wild men have betrayed them to the orcs. Um, I suspect that when he says some few at least must have escaped eastward to give warning of our approach, he's talking about orcs from the camp escaped to give warning of their approach. Um, so I, I, I don't see much reason to think that that's the wild men. Okay. We're making such awesome progress. A later version. It is the wild men of the hills. In many wooded vales they live secretly, but most in this region, remnants of the dark years. They go not to war for Gondor or the Mark, but a- and ask but to live wild. But now the darkness troubles them, and the coming of orcs. They fear lest the dark years become again. Awesome typing, Olsen. Let us be thankful, for they have offered service to Theoden. They are now our guides. This is, of course, the marshal who, or the captain, who's now speaking to Mary. Um, so notice how this is sort of re- resolving, right? And we're getting uh, many of those elements that we were kind of extracting and tracing in those early drafts articulated more clearly, right? The remnants from the dark years. Um, they're going not to war for Gondor the Mark, right? But they're 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 joining in, right? They're coming out of nowhere to help. They're still asking to live wild and remain separate. Uh, we get more of their rationale here, right? Um, that uh, they are they're troubled by the darkness and they fear the darkness, uh, uh, the dark years coming again. Um, Yana, again, here we get a little bit more of a glimpse of cultural memory, right? Dark years become again suggests that they do have stories that remember the dark years um, and that those were not happy times for the woes of old um, uh, and so therefore they don't want it to come again yeah 
Okay, so we can see those things kind of resolving themselves. Okay. Getting towards the end here. The end of the ride of the Rohirrim. After Aemir's counsel that the Rohirrim should rest now and set out again at night, and the words to this the king, the king assented and the captains departed, my father set down a brief outline. On the grass way they find Hirgun's body and dead horse, facing back west. They are drawing near the Ramas when they meet a runner in the dark and take him captive. But he proves to be a soldier of Gondor, that, escaping through a postern, has slipped through the leaguer and run for fourteen miles. He falls, dying of wounds and exhaustion. Too late you come, he cried. The first circle is burning and abandoned. The Lord will not give heed to the defense. Great siege towers and engines. They are bringing up a huge ram for the gates. Then suddenly, as he looked at the flame far off, the heart swelled in Theoden as of one who is fay. And without more counsel, he seized a great horn and blew it, and all the horns in the host took up the challenge. Then, without more debate, the Rohirrim poured in upon the fields of Gondor like a great torrent. Um, so, does this make anybody else uncomfortable? This is a very dramatic scene, Carita. I, I mean, the, the, uh, juxtaposition of finding the dead body of the messenger, right, who was bearing, who was bearing their message back to Minas Tirith, uh, with this, uh, uh, with this runner, uh, this expiring runner who gives them the message. It's very dramatic. But, um, but it makes me uneasy. I am filled with unease. Because uh, it reminds me of something. Does it remind anybody of anything else? Is there any Silmarillion moment that this kind of starts to sound like to you? It reminds you of the marathon myth? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It sounds to me kind of like the Near Nith Arnoidiad. It kind of sounds to me like... It's so, what makes me uncomfortable about this is that the charge happens... The charge comes when Theoden is... Um, uh, he hears about the suffering of the city and his heart swells in him and he, without further consultation, right? Um, and remember what's just happened, right? What has just happened, as Christopher tells us right before this, Amir says, we should rest now and set out again at night, right? And the king assented and the captains departed, uh, and then this happens. So, okay. Um, I, um, oh, Bruce, I think this is probably the facing west means he didn't make it, right? Um, this is still in the published text where he comes in, finds the Ramas held against him, tries to run away, and is, uh, you know, tries to double back and is killed. Um, so, uh, Yes, Brian, it does make Theoden sound reckless in a way he doesn't sound in the published text. This is Theoden thinking just purely with his emotions, and his emotions are kind of unreliable in this moment. Fey is a dangerous word, right? I mean, the list of people who are Fey, 
most of the things done in a fey mood are not good, right? I mean, there's a poor track record for things done by people in a fey mood. Um, uh, you know, starting with Feanor and, 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 and coming through. So I, uh, am uneasy about this. Um, the charge of the Rohirrim is impressive here. They're pouring upon the field, in upon the fields of Gondor like a great torrent. That's impressive. So was the charge of Gwyndor, uh, and, you know, the elves of, of, uh, of Fingon's company in the near Nith Arnudiad, which drove all the way through the army uh, and almost made it into Angband itself until Gwyndor was taken on the very steps of Angband, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, yes, Karita, Fey means seeking death or reckless of life. Yes, exactly. Um... It, you know, sometimes can be a kind of good thing in the sense of like, uh, you know, being completely uh, going forth, not caring whether you live or die, being, uh, you know, taking no thought for your own self-preservation. That can be a good thing under some, some circumstances. Um, seeking death. Very rarely a good thing. Um uh, very rarely. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, Bruce, whether the word fey is actually used of Fingolfin as he rides off to challenge Morgoth. Whether it was used or not, he is fey in that moment. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Exactly, Kevin. Laughing, I shall die. Uh, no, like that that kind of attitude, that kind of disregard for death, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but, um, but again, it's just, it's the rashness, impetuousness, the thoughtlessness, the I am overwhelmed by powerful emotion, and as a result, I'm going to charge onto the battlefield. I'm not saying it's necessarily horrible. I'm just saying it makes me uneasy, right? Because we've seen this kind of thing end very badly. Um, uh, in uh, in other places uh, in Tolkien's works. Um, yes, Stephen, if I remember correctly, Eowyn is called Fay when she is riding with Theoden. I believe Mary uses it in his head. Um... But um, but anyway, really interesting that... No, so we've already gotten this stuff, right? So um, the fact that Denethor is neglecting the defense, um, this, this, this follows the previous chapter, right? So we've already gotten to the Denethor thing, um, and Gandalf going about trying to encourage people while De- Denethor isn't, right? Because he's already... He's, he's, he's been crushed, right? He's been crushed by the near death of Faramir and his blaming of himself. Um... Still no influence by the Palantir, right? That's not happening yet, but we do have him uh, being extremely upset. Yeah, Tom, I didn't think the word Fey was used to Fingolfin. Again, he obviously is. I'd use him as an example of Fey, but I didn't think the word Fey was used uh, of Fingolfin. I couldn't remember it. Um, but goodness knows I've often been wrong. Um, 
Okay, so uh, what was I talking about? I was talking about... Um, oh, yeah, right. So wh- where where we are. So he's already drafted that scene, like the horns, 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 right? Horns in the north, wildly blowing. Um, Rohan had come at last. So he's already written that. He So he's already wrote... He's already, he has already wrote. He has already written that scene with Gandalf and the Wizard King, right? At the gates of Minas Tirith. Um, therefore... That he first comes in and thinks about the horns being uh, blown in this kind of a spirit is interesting to me. Um, does it prove that this is um, not? Um, does it prove that that you know this the charge is a bad idea or ill fated or anything like that? No, not necessarily. It doesn't prove that. Um, it's just interesting. It's an interesting data point, right? In thinking about, you know, the concept of being fae in Tolkien and this, you know, it would be it would be an interesting counter, in a sense, an interesting counter to examples like the one I was giving from the Near Nithar Arnoidiad. Yeah. Good. Uh, Tom says in the Silmarillion, Fae is only used of Feanor, Turin, and Morwen. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. All right. Now we get to the Battle of Pelennor Field. So now this is from that uh, outline uh, from that very short chapter. Now, um, this chapter frustrates me a little bit. I think I'm going to have to disagree with Christopher here. Disagree about where in the sequence of composition this outline came. Um, Goodness knows there's a great deal of um, hard evidence, like the paper and the writing and the ink and all those kinds of things that Christopher has access to that I don't just, you know, that that I don't have just by reading this chapter. Um, But he, Christopher talks about the uncertainty of dating it, you know, of placing it in comparison to the other chapters that were being written, because one passage at least looks like it was prior to the Denethor stuff, his realization about Denethor's madness. Um, and that seems pretty clear. But another passage seems to be after the Tolkien decides that the Ents are not going to attack the Orc camp in Anorian, which we just did, right? In the in the so he writes that in the uh, in the Ride of the Rohirrim chapter. So it's pretty clear that the Ride of the Rohirrim chapter is written after the um, uh, the the Siege of Gondor chapter, right? And yet this chapter seems, by Christopher Tolkien's reasoning, to come after the, uh, the Ride of the Rohirrim chapter because Tolkien has already rejected the Ents being in Anorian there. So, um, so Christopher says, all right, um, this is this probably is written after, even though, or you know, so he's like, you know, and, and then he kind of hedges and says it was probably, you know, he went back and forth and was writing it a bunch of different times. That may be, but I disagree with him fairly strongly about this. I don't think I think that his argument that this was written after uh, the ride of the Rohirrim chapter is fairly weak. Um, no, Treebeard is not there in Anorian. Um, and yes, this outline does not seem to contain that idea. 
that does not prove to me, I don't feel that that proves that it was written after that chapter. Um, if there's any trend that we can see about Tolkien's invocation of the Ents uh, in these chapters, it is that they're coming and going all over the place, right? So the fact that he has them popping up in a different place than he did uh, than he did elsewhere is to me no argument at all uh, for sequence. Whereas the Denethor stuff is really clear. Uh, so I w- that that I think is very very strong. Um, so I would suggest that this chapter actually I would have put this chapter significantly earlier. I think it should come before, at least before both of those two chapters, before the Siege of Gondor uh, and the uh, the Ride of the Rohirrim. Cause, so I think we're kind of going backwards um, or further down uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, in our uh, archaeological layers here. So this, I think, is out of sequence. Um, yeah. <laughs> With Chronology in a different sense, James, right? Not the chronology of the story, the chronology of the composition. Anyway, okay, sorry. Got that off my chest. 15 March, horns of Rohan heard in the morning. Great charge of the Rohirrim through breach in north of Ramas Koran. Rohirrim reach field before great gate, and men of Minas Tirith throw out enemy. I love that. Get out! But, But wizard king takes to air and becomes Nazgul. Rallies host of Morgul and assails king. Theoden falls from horse, sorely wounded. He is saved by Mary and Eowyn, but sortie from gate does not reach them in time before Eowyn is slain. Grief and wrath of Eomir. Eomir leads Rohirrim in a second reckless charge, but at that moment there is a cry from the city. A black fleet is seen coming from Haraman. Men are landing. Then as final despair comes on and Rohirrim give back, West, change to south wind, rolls back cloud, and noon sun gleams through. Aragorn unfurls his great standard from shiptop. The crown and stars of sun and moon shine out. Men cry that Elendil has come back to life, or Numa something or other. But not Nor, as Christopher points out. Aemir charges, and the enemy is routed, and so Aemir and Aragorn meet again on the field, though all the hosts of Mordor lay between. Okay. Um, all right. Where to start here? Um, small point. This moment right here, this to me is a very intriguing cross-out. Um, that the miraculous wind which rolls back the cloud of darkness and... Uh, breaks the sun on the field and unfurls the banner of Aragorn was a was that his first impulse was to make that a west wind. Um, to, it is to me very strong evidence of something of which I was already very convinced, namely that that you know that that the wind at the Battle of Pelennor Field, you know, the wind before the Battle of Pelennor Field, um, I would long have pointed to as one of the clearest examples of the intervention of the Valar uh, in The Lord of the Rings, right? That uh, that that the Valar are not idle, uh, and that some other power is at work throughout this story. Um, it's one of the most manifest moments. The fact that Tolkien's first impulse was to have it be a west wind uh, is, to me... Uh, 
sort of plainly showing his thought there. Uh, and again, in ways which I think is already fairly plain even without that. But then, of course, he shifts it around to the south in order to make it actually be physically wafting the ships up the, the river, too, right? So that uh, sort of works even better. Um, notice how this is the first time we have seen the U- the catastrophe of the battle articulated really clearly, right? The fact that there was going to be that Aragorn's action going down through the secret pass in the mountains, going into the south of Gondor, and then coming back up north to defeat the, you know, and defeating the Haradrim, um, that was always going to be a sort of you catastrophic action, even when it was only like a military maneuver, crossing the pass and uh, coming down and taking that enemy from behind. But, um, but that's, that's, uh, now all kind of crystallized together, right? And the way in which this, this, this now comes together as, as this highly dramatic, eucatastrophic moment is really beautiful to see. This has been kind of implicit, right? Uh, and only growing as the story of that southward leg of the journey has developed and developed, right? Um, Beautiful to see it crystallize like this. Um, Okay, but here's my... Here's the moment that I am most interested in in this piece of outline. But Wizard King takes to air and become Nazgul. Now, let's think about that. I am I love how Christopher in his note says he probably didn't mean that but I have to admit he uses exactly the same phrase later in this outline right so clearly he did mean that in some sense right Um, I think that there is a simple explanation for this and there is a uh, more complicated explanation for this, potentially. The simple explanation... The word Nazgul... Um, I, so, the, the, the simple explanation says, the Witch King doesn't transform himself, right? Like, He's still a Nazgul when he's riding a horse, right? It, he doesn't become more wraithly uh, when he's in the air. It's not an altitude question, right? Um, so the simple explanation is that the word Nazgul, Tolkien is using the word Nazgul here as a sort of shorthand expression, right? So as he's outlining here, Nazgul means one of those flying uh things up in the sky, right? Not not the mounts, but um, the aerial threat, right? The sort of the the spiritual assault that comes from the air, right? This uh, attack of despair and uh, and fear uh, that has been gripping the the city. Those are the so Nazgul means that. Um, again, in not ontologically, but in a kind of shorthand. 
right? Um, so he is the general, when he is riding a horse, he's still the same dude, but when he's riding a horse, he is the captain general of the army and he is operating as the general of the army. He's no less sorceress. He's no less wraithly, right? He still does things like cries out three times and shatters the gates of the city and all that kind of thing. But he's operating not as a Nazgul, as like the other Nazgul are doing. He's not fulfilling their role in the tactics of the attack. He is operating as the on-the-ground general of the forces, right? Um, And the leader of the armies. Now, when he mounts back up again and takes to wing, he's operating as a Nazgul again and not as a general on the ground. So my simplest explanation is... uh, my simplest explanation is just that, you know, become Nazgul, that he just, again, Nazgul is just kind of shorthand for those wraiths, wraiths on wings, right? Uh, to use Gollum's expression, right? Wraith on wing equals, on, on wings equals Nazgul. Um, the more complicated explanation would be that there is a transformation of some kind that takes place. More on that later. Good incentive to keep moving. By evening of 15th, in pencil changed to 14th, in a blood-red sun, victory is complete. All enemy is driven into or back over Anduin. Aragorn sets up his pavilion in standard outside gate, but will not enter city yet. Denethor comes down to greet the victors. Denethor still alive and sane-ish, at least. Theoden dies. He bids farewell to Gandalf, Aragorn, Eomer, and Merry. Uh, everybody but Eowyn, apparently. Uh, does he know she's dead? I don't know. Theoden and Eowyn laid for a time in the royal tombs. Words of so uh, Theoden gets a really long, he's dying for a long time, right? He 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 makes it until the end of the battle, right? Um, and then dies. No wonder he has time to say goodbye to so many people. Um, <laughs> James Leibach says, Eowyn, colon, still dead. Yeah, agreed. Um, Eowyn kicks it immediately, right? Theoden lingers forever here. So, anyway, okay. Words of Aragorn and Denethor. Denethor will not yield stewardship yet. Not until war is won or lost and all is made clear. But he is cold and suspicious and maybe mock courteous? Aragorn, grave and silent. But Denethor says that Belak the stewardship will run out anyway, since he seems like to lose both his sons. Faramir is sick of his wounds. <laughs> I would be too. No, yeah, that's not what he means. If he dies, then Gondor can take what new lord it likes. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my line's dying anyway. You can have the scraps after we're done. Aragorn says he will not be taken. He will take but asks to see Faramir. Faramir is brought out, and Aragorn tends him all that night, and love springs between them. (laughs) Jennifer says, Aragorn loses Eowyn as a love interest and gains Faramir. Not that way, (laughs) Jennifer. I don't think, I don't think that's what he's suggesting here. Uh, Love springs between them in the published text, too, of course. Um, But anyway, yeah, okay, so... Aragorn says he will not be taken, he will take, right? This is not a question of, will the city vote for me? Like, that was so five drafts ago, Denethor, that is not how it's going to... This is not going to be an election, right? I'm going to claim my kingship or not. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Evan, it is interesting that we're, we're granted and then denied an encounter between Aragorn and Denethor, right? Um, like I said, to me, this passage, it's, it's, it's just plain as day, right, that this passage is written before the discovery that he made uh, in the Siege of Gondor chapter, right, as he's writing that, um, the, the realization of Denethor's madness uh, and death, right? That's, um, this is not that Denethor. He's already... He'd been throughout the drafts. He'd been moving to become more cold and suspicious and mock courteous, right? We'd been getting that in the conversations with Gandalf and stuff, right? Even before, even when he was still being halfway decent to his son, um, Faramir. That is, while well, Faramir was still alive, um, or you know, still like you know, ambulatory. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, James <laughs> James Oakley says, "King, well, I didn't vote for you." Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, this is still that Denethor. This is still the this is the undiscovered Denethor, right? Tolkien hasn't figured it. But what do we see here? We see Tolkien trying to figure this out. Um, we had versions, earlier versions, I suspect, than this, in which Denethor just kind of was a cipher, right? Denethor was still around. He was just not taking much role in the... We've got the battle, and then Denethor's in the back seat, right? He's left in the city, and nobody cares, and Aragorn is leading the army. How did that go down? Did they have a confrontation? You know, what... Uh, how did that work? Um, so, I, this, I think, is Tolkien's... So, I would date... My argument would be that those earlier things, those those descriptions of the battles and the military campaigns in which Denethor just kind of was still alive but became irrelevant, were first, right? And that this is an earlier version of him trying to figure out what's up with Denethor, right? What position does Denethor take? Why does he end up with the role that he has, right? Um, and this is him try, kind of working out the tension between him and Aragorn and why Aragorn Aragorn is going to, in a sense, assert his position, not as king yet, but as leader of the armies, right? And Denethor is going to be kind of left at home. Um, you can kind of see that emerging, I think, potentially, uh, from this exchange. But then, of course, he makes the real discovery about Denethor. No, Denethor is going to go, he's going to get crushed, before this ever happens, Denethor and Aragorn are never going to meet, because Denethor is already going to be dead. That is the final and correct answer, right? That when he discovers what really happens to Denethor. Um, uh, so, uh, um, but, 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 but Faramir, right? We've got the, uh, Aragorn and Faramir, there's going to be love between them, right? Aragorn is, how is Faramir's life going to be saved? is going to be saved by Aragorn, and he is going to be faithful to Aragorn. And this is a huge thing. Again, notice, once again, Faramir has been put into a difficult position, right? Uh, If Faramir's near-death, apparently inevitable death, psychologically crushes his father after how his father treated him, what's it going to do to Faramir? when Faramir wakes to find his father's basically killed himself, right? Um, over him. Um, that's going to be hard. And how is he going to act towards Aragorn? We know already from Faramir, Faramir, the awesomeness of Faramir is such that he is obviously not going to take this line with Aragorn. There's no way he's going to deny Aragorn. And yet, he would need to be faithful to his father, right? 
um, he he's not gonna he would have some kind of pressure to to um, you know kind of follow his father to some extent um, but um, but anyway um, so so what do we get that that this how do we how do we get Faramir out of this fix now that his awesomeness has placed him in answer the healing right the personal bond not the political loyalty right but the personal bond between Faramir and Aragorn um that his personal gratitude to Aragorn combined with his duty as steward uh to hand over the rulership to the rightful king when he returns um not to mention the madness of his father right now kind of make it clear um Tony, I think you have it exactly. We never get this conflict, right? Uh, Evan, as you were pointing out, we get a glimpse of what a what a confrontation between Aragorn and Denethor would look like, right? And then Tolkien cuts it. So where does it go? It goes in the drawer, right? When does it come out? <laughs> it's not going to stay in that drawer. You know it's not going to stay in that drawer. I think Tony's exactly right. It comes out in Appendix A. The whole tension between Denethor and Thorongil, I think, is the is the the sort of resuscitation of that. Th- he's pulled that out of the drawer, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no evidence that Thorongil is around yet, conceptually. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't think there is. Don't think there is. Don't think there is. Um, certainly not that element of the story. I, I, I think Tony. I, that seems to me very likely the direction that it goes. Um, that this here is, in a sense, kind of the nugget of that element, anyway, of the uh, of the Thorongil story. All right, keep going. Same outline. Aragorn and Gandalf counsel immediate action. Gandalf does not hope to conquer Mordor or overthrow Sauron and his tower. Not in these latter days, nor ever again by force of arms. So this is um, Gandalf saying, we can't pull a last alliance, right? We're not going to be, there's nobody, you know, Aragorn, you're awesome, but you're not a silder. We're not going to see you standing with your foot on Sauron's neck, right? Cutting the ring from his hand. That's not going to happen. Um, you're not, uh, you're not going to cast down Sauron and then, and then loot his corpse, like Isildur did, right? Um, no, that th- that can't ever happen again. Yet arms have their place, and sloth now might be ruinous. Gandalf advises at least the taking and destruction of Minas Morgul. Now, here comes my favorite part. Uh, my favorite part, because this is not just an outline of the story, which is now looking super familiar, right? This is behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't get in the published story. Nota bene. Sauron already troubled by news of the victory of the Ents on March 11th, as it wouldn't be. Ents, another detail left out of his plans. First hears of Frodo on uh, 1 to 5 of March, and at the same time by Nazgul of the defeat of Pelennor and the coming of... 1 to 5... I think it must be 15, on 15 of March. Anyway, I think that's when he would have heard it. Anyway, first here's a Frodo on 15 of March, and at the same time by Nazgul, of the defeat of Pelennor and the coming of Aragorn. He is wrathful and afraid, but puzzled, especially by news of Frodo. He sends the Nazgul to Kirithungol to get Frodo. 
but thinks chiefly of his war, and suspecting that Gondor will follow up victory, he plans a counterattack and withdraws all his forces to Moranon and Kirith Gorgor. Okay. Um, all right. So, this is so awesome because we're getting, like, meanwhile, what was Sauron actually thinking, right? And I love that. Um, he first hears of Frodo on the same day that he hears of the defeat at Pelennor Field, right? Um, the timing of that uh, and how significant the timing of that becomes, right? Um, how effective Aragorn and Gandalf's strategy is of drawing his attention. Um, we're told that he's troubled by Frodo, right? The fact that his orcs have captured a spy, a hobbit spy, in the mountains, right? Above Minas Morgul. So one who had penetrated that far into Mordor? What was he doing? What is the story there, right? What on earth is going on? That's troubling. Sauron doesn't get it, and he's, on, he's, he's concerned about it. But on the same day, he receives the momentous news, right, um, of uh, the defeat of Pelennor and the coming of Aragorn. And so his mind is completely focused on that. Um, and he knows. Uh, Gandalf says... Arms have their place, right? We must strike out. We must take Minas Morgul. At least, you know, we must go on the offensive here. And what's Sauron over there thinking? Oh, I'm going to go on the bloody offensive, right? I better get ready for that. And so he starts gathering his orcs and, of course, shifting them all away from Mount Doom, making it easier for Frodo to get there. Really cool. I love the behind-the-scenes stuff there that we don't get anywhere else. Okay. The hosts, as many as are unhurt, of Rohan and Gondor, with rangers, set out on 16th, changed in pencil to the 17th, and cross Anduin and find Osgiliath empty. On the 17th, they march on Minas Morgul, and the van, riders of Rohan and rangers of Gandalf, reach it on 18th, in pencil 19th, noon, and find it dark and deserted. They burn the fields, and Gandalf destroys its magic. Oh, man, how did Gandalf destroy its magic? I want to see that. Uh, they now plan... By the way, if I were writing the Amazon series, I would totally have Gandalf destroy its magic. Like That, that would be a thing. I would totally do that. Uh, that is too good not to happen. I would give up the sheaf of lightning, but I would not give up Gandalf destroying the magic of Minas Morgul. Um, okay, anyway. Sorry, keep going. Okay, they now plan to march on the Moranon. A guard is set on road, lest an army come up from south, or Sauron lets any sortie out through Kirithungul. No very great force could come that way in a hurry. Yeah, they have come single file. They have now, however, to go, uh, uh, to go more slow, and keep all their hosts together, moving only at the speed of infantry. The footmen come up on the 19th. Remember the, the van, you know, the, the forward part of the army, were all um, mounted. Right, the riders of Rohan and the Rangers and Gandalf. Right, but now all of them are sticking together, uh, and they're, so they're they're going, uh, they're marching along with the foot soldiers. The footmen come up on the nineteenth. That is, they get to the 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 infantry doesn't arrive at Minas Morgul until the nineteenth. On twentieth, they set out for the Moranon. 
120 and pencil changed to 100 miles by road. They marched through empty lands unassailed, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and reached Moranon just as Frodo is beginning the ascent of Oradruin, changed to is crossing Kirith Gorgor, changed to draws near Oradruin. Okay, we've got this all focused in now. There, to joy and surprise, are joined by Ents, with new forces out of north, including elves of Lorien. Remember, these two have been a priority, right? His vision of the battles down here as they happen have included Ents and Lorien elves coming to the rescue all along, right? That has been very consistent from the beginning. And again, I think that this is that same kind of impulse, that same allies of the light against the shadow. Um, Tolkien seems to really, really want to turn the last alliance into the penultimate alliance, right? Um, Despite the fact that he's already said things like, never again shall there be such a league between elves and and yet he's really itching for it, right, throughout all of this. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And yet, James, no, he can't keep he can't keep the ants away. Uh, it's funny, you know, people will often make jokes about how Tolkien keeps bringing the eagles in. Um, the eagles are kind of a last-second expedient to replace the ants, right? It's the ants that he keeps dragging in all over the place. Um, but, Brian, I agree. With the ants and the elves coming in, this does not seem as hopeless a fight as it will later become. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. And Brian, yes, I agree. The march toward the Black Gate is not purely a delaying tactic. Um, it does have other tactical goals, such as destroying Minas Morgul. Yes, yes, exactly. The power of Minas Morgul is broken. That does seem to be... And that Gandalf cites that as an objective, right? We should destroy Minas Morgul. Um, whoa! Oh, dear me. Sorry. Accidentally did a massive scrolling on the wrong page. Where were we? Plants of both sides. Long march and new allies. Okay, ah, right, the messenger. All right. Now follows the... And I know I'm keeping you late, but I started late, which always makes me feel a little bit guilty. So I know if you're too sleepy, it's totally okay. You can catch up on the end later. But I'm going to finish a little bit more uh, because I'm doing pretty well now, actually, getting there. Now follows the parley added on 25th. Aragorn and Amir wind horns before the Moranon and summon Sauron to come forth. There is no answer at first, but Sauron had already laid his plans, and an embassy was already coming to the Black Gate. The Wizard King? He bears the mithril coat, and says that Sauron has already captured the messenger, a hobbit. How does Sauron know? He would, of course, guess, for Gollum's previous visits, from Gollum's, I think, previous visits, that a small messenger might be a hobbit. But it is probably that either Frodo talked in his drugged sleep, not of the ring, but of his name and country, and that Gorbag had sent tidings. The messenger jeers at Gandalf for sending a weak spy into the land where he dare not go himself, since his wizardry is no match for the master. Now Sauron has the messenger, and what happens to him depends on Gandalf and Aragorn. He sees their faces blench, and jeers again. So, he says, he was dear to you, or his errand was vital? So much the worse for you, for he shall endure slow torment of years, and then be released when broken, unless you accept Sauron's terms. Okay. All right. Um, First of all, 
I have no idea what's up with resurrecting the Wizard King again. Um, I mean, I can only read this as, like, he just doesn't want to let the Wizard King go. Um, he wants there to be a spokesperson uh, for Sauron here, and he doesn't want the spokesperson just to be some random schmo that he's never introduced before, because uh, that'd be bad. So he's like, okay, I, I need somebody with some stature. So apparently the desire to have an already recognizable character with serious stature among the servants of Sauron um, in order to be this messenger. Because remember, it was Sauron originally. Sauron himself came out personally to deliver this message. He doesn't want to do that anymore. He wants to keep Sauron offstage, um, so he needs somebody else. And he doesn't have that many candidates, right? There are very few candidates who could do this job. Um, The Wizard King would do fine if he were not already so inconveniently dead. Um, so he seems to be willing to reconsider the death of the Wizard King for this. Um, concerning, so Eowyn shall have died in vain? I mean, or maybe this means Eowyn isn't going to die. I don't know. But of course, for all that I joke about the fact that Tolkien never throws anything away, right, and never, uh, uh, never discards anything, um, for, for all I joke about that, we do see many examples of Tolkien so showing an almost shocking willingness to take a core concept of his story and pitch it, right? Something that has been there forever and just say like, nah, you know, for a like comparatively, you know, kind of minor gain, one would think he's just going to chuck it all away. Right. Um, Anyway, uh, in some ways, like in a, a sort of a, a, a much smaller scale version of this, to me, is his willingness to recycle the name Fingolfin uh, for the old uh, general of the goblins who gets decapitated by Bullroarer Took in the early version of that. So in the first, the first uh, draft of chapter one of The Hobbit, the name of the goblin king is Fingolfin um, because it has the word golf in it. So like for the sake of the golf pun... Uh, he's willing to take the name of Fingolfin and remove it from the character who has already had it by that time for decades in Tolkien's mythology. Um, anyway, yeah, so uh, I, I think uh, this is um, um, interesting. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so he seems to be willing to let the Wizard King live. Presumably that means Eowyn gets to live too, but who knows? We'll keep going. The other point. Christopher just punts this one. He doesn't offer any real explanation of this. Messenger. Why messenger? Okay, one other small point first. Love the fact that Tolkien draws attention to the fact that Sauron doesn't have the faintest idea what a hobbit is. Right. He has never clapped eyes on a hobbit in his life. Right. So the whole concept of hobbit is totally theoretical to Sauron. Right. Um, He would, of course, guess from Gollum's previous visits that a messenger might be a small messenger might be a hobbit. Okay, so if you see any small, runty humanoid people, that's what they're. they're, So there are these things called hobbits and they're short, right? So if you see any unusually short people, those are probably hobbits. Um, it's fascinating to see the, 
the depth of Sauron's ignorance about hobbits. We see lots of times and places where hobbits are being underestimated, right? I was just making the argument last night uh, that that's what we see from the Nazgul and Crick Hollow, that we see them underestimating Fatty Bulger, um, uh, not even expecting that he's going to have the fortitude to be able to run away in that moment. Um, uh, you know, that they, they assume he's still just cowering in terror as they apparently mean him to be inside the house. Uh, but anyway, um, Sauron, we see... Okay, so just the revelation of the depth of his ignorance of hobbits is really kind of fun. Um, uh, and uh, notice how Hobbit keeps getting italicized here. A hobbit, like that is to say, that's like hobbit in air quotes, right? Um, uh, a small messenger might be a hobbit. One of these hobbits of which you speak. He has no idea what it means. Okay. But of course, the, that last big thing. In what sense? Frodo keeps being called a messenger. What does that mean? Why is Tolkien using that word to describe him? Let's look at the ways in which he uses it here. He bears the mithril coat, the messenger, that is Sauron's messenger, and says that Sauron has already captured the messenger, a hobbit. A small messenger might be a hobbit. Now Sauron has the messenger. Uh, was his errand vital? Uh, Tara, he is a messenger. I don't think that that proves that he is also a mariner and a passenger, uh, though I have been thinking the same thing. Uh, um, in what sense would he be a messenger? In what sense would Sauron assume he's a messenger? Whose message, message is he bearing from whom into whom? Exactly. Um, why, when he catches up... I mean, spy is the word that the orcs use. I think even in the draft, when we were doing the Book 4 stuff. Um, spy is the natural thing, right? Spy is where he's going to get to, you know, to send them as spies, Uh into Mordor is beyond even your accustomed folly, he's going to say in the published text. Um, so that's where we're going to get. A scout would make sense. Somebody to spy out the land and spy out the movements of Sauron's armies. Makes sense. That you would do. But mess- What, to Sauron? That he's going to... Gandalf is going to, in his folly, send a hobbit with a message for Sauron? I just don't understand. Um, yeah, no, yeah, the movements of armies is what there is to spy on, I would say. Um, uh, I mean, I, I hear you that, you know, you could say that there are limited spying opportunities, but that, but that is, especially remember, this is an invasion force that's coming from Gondor here, right? Um, and he, Sauron, clearly from that paragraph aside that we get, right, um, clearly thinks of the Gondorians as like prime, that 
they're going to go on the offensive, right? And of course, we know from earlier drafts that is indeed their inclination, right? Um, so he is not just, he, Sauron, is not just preparing for an all-out assault against a defensive force, right? He is expecting a counterattack, and if you are counterattacking, you are going to um, want to see what the disposition of your enemy is. Might they, that is, the Gondorian army, you know, Gandalf's army, might they try to sneak over Kirithungol and uh, surprise the armies of, you know, is that why they're attacking Minas, you know, Minas Morgul, or is that their intention? Remember, he captures, for he hears of the capture of Frodo on the same day of the Battle of Pelennor Field, so maybe this was their plan all along, right? You know, they're going to beat off that first assault, and then they're going to counterattack, they're going to go for Minas Morgul, uh, they're going to they're going to at least maybe sneak some across the... But, you know, before you know whether or not that's advantageous, you're going to send a scout, right? You're going to send a spy. So it all makes all kinds of sense, I guess. Um, but uh, how would you communicate that, though, Yana asks? Uh, it's early. It's only the 15th. Right, they sent this advanced scout into Kirithungul to say that to tell them the disposition of Sauron's forces. Then he still has time to get out and meet the army as it advances. Right, this scout would just be the Gondorians thinking ahead, which again we're told is exactly what Sauron expects of them. Right, um, so yeah, yeah. Um, but messenger, I just, I don't get it. I don't understand it at all. None of the usages makes it clearer. In fact, the most puzzling one of all is the second one. He would, of course, guess from Gollum's previous visits that a small messenger might be a hobbit. Is the converse true? (laughs) That a hobbit must be a messenger? Right? A small hobbit must be a messenger. Um, his use of the word messenger, I don't get it. I'm gonna. I guess I'm just going to punt on it, too, like Christopher did. I don't... Uh, sorry, punting. American football reference. I shouldn't do that. Um, I'm giving up. Uh, I'm just going to... Uh, I, I, I don't have an explanation. I can't think of any way... I can't think of any reading that fits that usage. The question that I can't... The question that I can't answer for myself to my satisfaction is if Sauron assumes he's a messenger, from whom, to whom, and what does he imagine is going to... Why would his first thought be, oh, messenger? To him? Who else could it be to? Into Mordor. Message to the slaves around the Sea of Nurn to rise up against their masters and help with the resistance? Like, who could he be giving a message to? If not Sauron. And if he's coming to Sauron, why capture him? I mean, okay, because you're Sauron and, you know, you're unpleasant. Um, uh, And you would much rather capture and torture your allies' messengers than just let them proceed in peace. Uh, uh, okay, 
but that still doesn't really. And why is he disturbed by it? If he's disturbed, if he believes he's a messenger and he's disturbed, why isn't his answer just to be like, uh, ask what his message is? <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Stephen, I, I can't think of an archaic usage of the word messenger. Um, yeah. Uh, um, Tony and Tuffletoft? I've never seen that Twitch name before. Uh, 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 that's, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, both suggesting messenger in the sense of spy, someone who observes enemy movements and carries back a message to report. Um, yes, so messenger from his own people to his own people, who carries a message of the... So, messenger in the sense of talebearer, right? Someone who's going to tell what he has seen. I mean, that feels to me like a bit of a stretch, but better than anything else I can think of, um, still seems to me real strange that he'd use that word. Instead of... Maybe he was just... Maybe this is one... Okay, okay. Maybe this is just one of those moments when Tolkien was trying to avoid... Maybe he just doesn't want to use the word spy. He's just trying to avoid that word. And so he's trying to find another word to use. It's like the pipeweed problem, right? He doesn't want to use tobacco. But there are there are a couple examples of times when Tolkien didn't want to use a word, but caved in the end, because there wasn't another good alternative. One of the most famous examples of that is the word louver, right? Uh, twice that I can think of, he uses the word louver, meaning like a hatch in the ceiling to let smoke out. Um, he uses the word louver in the description of, of uh, Meduselt. He also uses the word louver, which I had forgotten, in the description of the Temple of Melkor in Numenor, that there's a louver in the top of the domed temple. Um, I was kind of shocked when I came across that usage of the word louver. Um, but he didn't like it because it's way too French, especially in the Rohirric context, right? To be uh, uh, describing this beautiful Anglo-Saxon mead hall, which was probably based, uh, uh, you know, at least sort of connected or inspired by the archaeological uh, uh, mead halls and things that they were kind of the images that they had. Um, so here's Metaseld, right? This beautiful little mead hall with a French hatch in the roof, right? Why well, didn't just use the word hatch? I don't really know. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, he, he, he wanted another word, but there was no other perfect word. So he caved and used the French word and the word louver appears in the text. I wonder if this is the same thing here. He didn't want to use the word spy. It's theory, theory. He didn't want to use the word spy. He's trying to avoid the word spy. And so he's trying to find an alternative way to say this. But in the end, he caves. And in the published text, he uses the word spy. Scout? Why not scout? Wouldn't scout be better? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That's the best theory I got. Okay. Okay, let's do this one quick. And then I think we're done with the outline. So we're still only one chapter behind. That's great. All right. Uh, and only a couple slides 
right? Yeah, I think we're only maybe three slides away. Okay, Gandalf replies, Yea, and what surety have we that Sauron will keep his part? Let him yield first the prisoner. That is awkward for the ambassador, as in fact Sauron has not got him. But he laughs. Take it or leave it so, he said. We will take it, said Gandalf. This the mithril coat in memory. But as for your terms, we reject them utterly. Horror of Pippin and Mary, if they are present. For in any case, you would not keep them. Do as you will. And let fear eat your heart, for if you so much as set a thorn in the flesh of Frodo, you shall rue it. The ambassador laughs and gives a dreadful cry. Flinging off his garment, he vanishes. But at that cry, the host prepared an ambush, sally from the mountains on either side, and from the teeth, and pour out of the gate. The host of Gondor, taken at unawares, wavers, and the leaders are surrounded. Added in pencil, all the nine Nazgul remounted swoop down, but the eagles come to give battle. At that moment, 25th, the ring goes into crack of doom, and the mountain vomits, and Barad-dûr crashes, and all things done by Sauron crash down, the black gates fall. The host of Mordor is dismayed, and flees back for refuge into the Kirith Gorgor. The victorious host of Gondor and Rohan pours in in pursuit. Okay. Um, Excellent. Um, oh, by the way, right before this, I didn't include it because the passage is already really long. Um, we have Gandalf weeping, right? The tears on Gandalf's face. Think how far Gandalf has come, or rather how much f- further down Gandalf has come from his taunting speech to Sauron's face, right? Now the words of Sauron's messenger are making him weak. He still gives a strong answer, right? But um, uh, but he... Um, uh, he's now weeping. Very stark contrast to uh, uh, his arrogance before. Um, and uh, Brianna, yes, Tolkien does love his vomiting mountains, doesn't he? Yes, uh, mountains with intestinal complaints uh, are definitely a motif in Tolkien's prose, no question. Um, uh, good. Several, a couple other small things here that surprise me. Uh, one is... Um, the caught it unawares, like seriously, they're not expecting an attack. That, of course, changes. Uh, but it's interesting that his first impulse was to have them be surprised. I could see perhaps surprised at the suddenness of the assault or something like that. But uh, surely they would be taken totally unawares. Like, oh my gosh, we're being attacked! I never saw that coming, right? A little hard to imagine that Aragorn would be in that position, not to mention, um, you know, like. Eladon and Elro here and the Lothlorien elves and Treebeard surely is cynical enough to expect an attack, right? Uh, anyway. Um, and the the Witch King is clearly still in the house, right? All nine Nazgul remounted swoop down, right? So they, they're Nazgul again, right? They've, uh, they've become Nazgul because they, uh, they're remounted now. Um, we get a similar kind of uh, uh, shorthand, I think, being used there. Or is it shorthand? I'm not going to get to the passage I was alluding to, so I'm going to have to leave that one a little tantalizing. Um, uh, The victorious host of Gondor and Rohan pours in in pursuit. Notice again that we still have the kind of... uh, um, uh, We we get the... um, The offensive tendencies, right? That this is not just... uh, a defensive stand before the gates, right? Uh, this 
It starts that way very briefly, but it rapidly becomes an assault as they pour in uh, into Gorgor in pursuit. Okay. Um, all right, we're going to stop there because that's the end, right? Yes. Okay. No, it's not. Okay, this is the end. Super quick. Gandalf knows that Ring must have reached fire. Suddenly, Sauron is aware of the Ring in its peril. He sees Frodo afar off. In a last desperate attempt, he turns his thought from the battle so that his men waver again and are pressed back and tries to stop Frodo. At the same time, he sends Wizard King Aznazgul to the mountain. The whole plot is clear to him. He blasts the stone so that at that moment the Orthanc stone explodes. It would have killed Aragorn had he had it in his hand. He should have brained somebody with it beforehand. Gandalf bids here fly swiftly to Orodruin. Um, the the passive-aggressive assault through the Palantir is a little surprising. Uh, and the Wizard King is A, not only still not dead, um, He's still undead, uh, as it were, but he's also being sent as Nazgul to the mountain, that is, mounted on his steed, uh, if that's what it means. Um, the more he uses this phrase, the less this is, this is sounding to me like, um, the less this is sounding to me like just that kind of a shorthand for the for raids on wings, right? Um, a one word, you know, one word, which means raids on wings. Um, okay. Um, so the wizard King is rushing to the mountain. We're not going to get him, I think, wrestling or engaging in any fisticuffs with Frodo. That is the wizard King. Uh, we did get that. Remember we had a brief grappling scene between the Nazgul and, uh, Frodo. Um, uh, but he pitched that. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think this is like Gandalf uncloaked. This is the Nazgul's true form. Is the Wizard King riding on the steed, or is he taking the form of that vulture creature. Tune in next week when we return to the question of the vulture creature. Um, and Eowyn's most awesome moment ever. Um, but anyhow, okay. So, that's it for tonight. Not bad. Look at that. We're only like two slides away. Oh my goodness. Um, so that's fine. Uh, so next week we'll come back to this, um, and, uh, then we'll carry on through. We'll get the Pyre of Denethor next week. So we're going to go two more chapters. Um, Pyre of Denethor and the House of the Healing, I believe, uh, after we mop up the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, and yeah, so next week I'm going to be on the road. I'm going to be down in Charlotte, North Carolina. I believe I will be able to do class. That should be okay. I'm planning on it for now. There is a non-zero chance that I'd have to cancel class, but I don't think so. Um, so I'm just going to operate under the assumption that it's on. Okay. And then, uh, uh, we'll see as we move forward. So, okay. 
Um, yeah, I know that would ruin my plans for ending before Mythmoot, which is why I'm pretty determined to try to make it happen if I can. Uh, so yeah, that's it's kind of urgent now. If it weren't for that, if it weren't for that rash vow, then I might have uh, just said we'll postpone it. But I I, I can't now, so uh, I must uh, I must either uh, perform or die in the attempt. So we'll probably have class next week. All right. Thank you, everybody. Good night. And I will see you guys next week, if not before. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye now.